Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome, everyone. Um, on the line today, we have Brett Winton, who is our Director of Research at ARK Invest. I am Ali Ehrman. I am a genomics analyst at ARK. And of course, we have Dr. David Liu. Hi. <laughs> that was a mouthful. Maybe I'll just start with a really quick introduction. I know David's going to be like, don't say any of this, but it needs to be said. So David is a Richard Merkin Professor, Director of the Merkin Institute of Transformative Technologies in Healthcare, Vice Chair of the Faculty at the Brooke Institute of Harvard and MIT, scientific co-founder or founder of nine biotech or therapeutics companies. That includes Editas, Exotherapeutics, Beam Therapeutics, Prime Medicine. He also went to Harvard. He graduated first in his class. He's published over 195 scientific papers and is the inventor of over 75 issued patents. Welcome. Thank you, Allie. And yes, you should have uh, spent that time asking questions. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we'll get into it now. So um, let's just start with something really easy. What is GeneEdit and what first interested you in it? Yeah, so first in all seriousness, I'm grateful that you organized this interview and I appreciate you teaching me how to use this crazy new thing. <laughs> Hopefully it sounds okay. Um, <laughs> thank you for doing all of that and it's a pleasure being uh, your guest. So gene editing actually has a, a long, long history, far longer than I think most people outside of the field appreciate. In its most basic form, gene editing just means making some kind of purposeful change in a gene. And researchers have done that for decades. Not too long after the structure of DNA was elucidated in the 1950s, people were making changes in DNA. But the changes weren't always changes that we could control, either in their content or in where we were making the and so what most people mean by gene editing these days is making specific changes at a specific target site in the DNA of a living cell or organism, preferably in, in ways that are relevant to human cells and eventually to human beings. And what got you excited about it? <laughs> well, or, or like talk about, okay, yeah, specific to CRISPR and, and kind of the newer advances, you know, when did your research start really going after kind of the field that you're Yeah, so, so I think everybody in the molecular life sciences has long recognized the importance of DNA and of being able to make specific tailor-made changes in DNA. And our lab's specific interest in it actually predates CRISPR. As a chemist, I have long followed and admired the work a number of luminary chemists who have made a little bit of a trying to address DNA as a piece of digital information with molecules, meaning address it in a programmable way. So Peter Durvin at Caltech is one example of a terrific chemist who developed a family of small molecules based on a natural product called dystomycin that could bind DNA sequences of your choosing 
with some specificity. The specificity of small molecules programmed in DNA days would be considered uh, modest, but at the time was really groundbreaking and innovative, both for its base chemistry, bioorganic chemistry skill, and for, I think, the even more important recognition of a great problem. How can we take this molecule of two copies of three billion letters, each of which has a slightly different shape, and be able to digitally address it, meaning to engage a specific site in the genome of our choosing? So, you know, Peter was, I think, one of the, the chemists to recognize early on the importance of that problem. So when I became a professor in 1999, uh, we had a series of projects, and one of the projects in our lab was affectionately named the Unifactor 2000, which stood for Universal Transcription Factor, and 2000 at the time seemed like a futuristic date, so it was the Unifactor 2000. And in that project, our goal was to develop a series of RNA molecules that could target any site in the genome of our choosing. This was before the discovery of CRISPR, so we didn't have such a wonderful tool at our disposal. And instead, we tinkered with RNAs that are capable of forming triplexes, triple helices, where the DNA double helix of the genome provided two strands, and a third strand of RNA programmed by us, in theory, the idea went, <laughs> would be able to engage a target sequence of our choosing, and we could then turn on, turn off, or cut that DNA sequence. That project crashed and burned, and we were never really successful because the conditions needed to get that triple helix to form didn't overlap well with the conditions that cells like to live in. So, so the project was a failure, but I think it planted the seed and helped to develop the seed of how powerful it would be if you could digitally engage any side of your choosing in the human genome. And so you asked about the advent of sort of modern staples of modern beginnings of genome editing. And I think most people consider that to be zinc fingers, uh, zinc finger nucleases, tail proteins, or tail nucleases, and of course, CRISPR-Cas9. Each of those three platforms is a way to cut a DNA sequence of your choosing. And they each take advantage of a particular DNA binding platform, in all cases drawn from nature, but decoded, figured out by humans. So zinc fingers are a series of finger-like proteins that, when strung together like uh, beads on a necklace, can line up those fingers in a way that recognize the specific base pairs in DNA. And so seminal work of Carl Pabo and many others started to realize that to make possible the idea that we could engineer tailor-made zinc finger arrays, that is, repeats of zinc fingers, chosen by researchers to bind DNA sequences of our choosing. And that turned out to be correct. It's a difficult to use form in that it's not quite a simple lookup table that allows you to bind any sequence of your choosing. But zinc finger arrays can be developed and refined in the laboratory that binds DNA sequences of one's choosing with high affinity and high specificity. And of course, the platform that Sangamo really was built on. And then the tail nucleases use equally fascinating set of proteins borrowed again from nature called uh, tail repeat arrays. These were bacteria that infected plants and the bacteria did something really remarkable. These proteins would bind, once they infected the plants, they would bind specific genes in the plants and change the expression of those genes 
to enable the plant pathogen to replicate, to survive. And ingenious researchers, including uh, Bogdanove, figured out that there was a one-to-one -one correspondence between the sequence of each tail repeat protein and the DNA base that that tail repeat protein would engage. And just like zinc fingers, you could string together these tail proteins one after the other and create a tail array that was long enough that it could uniquely recognize one site in the human genome. And those proteins work actually quite well, and they do behave more like there's a simple lookup table. It doesn't require as much expertise to develop a tail protein that binds effectively and selectively a DNA sequence of one's choosing. And of course, the gene editing renaissance got a real kick in the pants when CRISPR was first used for gene editing in the work pioneered by Emmanuel Charpentier, Jennifer Doudna, Tuan Jean, George Church, Bur Burgess Sixness, and others. And as I think this audience probably knows well, the main breakthrough of the CRISPR system, also borrowed from nature, is that the CRISPR-Cas proteins are ones that are programmed by RNA. And if your program is a piece of RNA, and the language of RNA binding DNA follows simple Watson-Crick-based pairing, it becomes much easier to reprogram the CRISPR complex so that it binds an RNA, sorry, that binds a DNA sequence of your choosing. And in the case of CRISPR-Cas9, the revolutionary gene editing protein, CRISPR-Cas9 plus its guide RNA cuts a DNA double helix. So zinc finger nucleases, talons, and CRISPR-Cas9 all fundamentally do the same chemical reaction. They take a DNA double helix and they cut it into two pieces. And that's really what initiated this modern gene editing renaissance. And all basically call it discovered over the past decade or so. I guess maybe zinc finger was a little earlier. Yeah, zinc fingers were older, starting in the 1990s, tail proteins in the 2000s, late 2000s, and then CRISPR-Cas9 used for gene editing first in 2012. You know, on the timescale of the life sciences, all of that is pretty recent. And I would say the development of the field, you know, in the past five to 10 years has really been sort of at an unprecedented speed, something unlike anything I've seen in the life sciences. And that's, you know, really a testament to how excited people are, how much talent is being drawn to this subject, and what a special, unique time in the history of science we're at, where the era of human gene editing, therapeutic human gene editing is already here. There are already humans walking this earth that have had their genomes modified specifically in a way to counteract a genetic disease. And you know, that's really a pretty momentous era, I think, in the history of man, because it is the first time that we've modified our own genomes in ways to combat serious genetic diseases. When you look at the, at the publications, it's pretty interesting. If you do sort of a PubMed search, you can see actually how CRISPR takes off from some of the other technologies. So even though some of these were invented before, because, as you mentioned, it's just easier to use in the lab and, and more affordable, it's really sort of taken off. And you can even see that from sort of the publication standpoint, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, to me, it's one of the non-scientific take-home lessons of seeing the CRISPR revolution is that making something easy and accessible for scientists to use, even, even ones that specialize in, you know, genetics, in mammalian cell manipulations, making it easy has a, an enormous impact on the reach and the scope and therefore ultimately the importance of the work. So, you know, people, I think especially in academia, may have a natural aversion to claiming advances by sort of making something easier than it used to be. It's not as though we didn't have ways before CRISPR of cutting the genome, but CRISPR made it far easier for many labs, most labs, to be able to do so. And that's made a, a huge difference. 
So Dr. Liu, I love your example that you gave. I think this was an endpoints where you talked about it might not be a winner takes all. You know, I think you mentioned comparing CRISPR-Cas9 and maybe some sort of newer tech like base editing and prime editing. So maybe can you explain what is base editing, what is prime editing, both technologies that came from your lab, and sort of how they may all fit together. I think the example you gave was about a truck, and I think it just really <laughs> makes it clear, you know, how they might work together. Right. So CRISPR-Cas9 zinc finger nucleases, tail nucleases, as I mentioned, they cut DNA. So they are molecular scissors. They cut the DNA double helix and break it into two pieces. And CRISPR-Cas9 was evolved in nature, or I should say evolved in nature, to mess up viral genes because CRISPR-Cas9 is an immune system that bacteria use to ward off viruses who are trying to infect the bacteria. So when a virus infects a bacteria, CRISPR-Cas9 can cut the viral gene. And cutting a piece of DNA, cutting a gene, is a very effective way to mess it up. So the motivation behind base editing was the simple recognition that for most genetic diseases, to study the disease or to treat the disease, we can't really do that well if we just mess up the gene. We need to actually precisely fix it. And it's very difficult in therapeutically relevant cells to make precise DNA changes by cutting the DNA. Cutting the DNA in a human cell is pretty traumatic. It has many of the same consequences that the bacteria that use CRISPR-Cas9 to mess up virus DNA evolved. It disrupts genes. It also causes cells to commit suicide, undergo apoptosis. It causes chromosomal rearrangements, large deletions at the cut site, a recent series of papers described from David Pelham and others describe this incredibly fascinating process called chromothripsis that he detected in sort of single-digit percentage cells treated with CRISPR-Cas9 scissors, meaning when you cut DNA in a chromosome, there is a measurable percentage of outcomes in which other things beyond even messing up the target gene happen. You can get large deletions of thousands or even hundreds of thousands or millions of, of DNA bases. You can get translocations. Part of one chromosome ends up stuck onto another chromosome. And in perhaps the most dramatic cases, you can get chromothripsis, which is uh, literally shattering and recombination of all the shattered pieces in a random order of a chromosome. And these larger changes are not easy to detect, which is in part why it's taken scientists a number of years to rigorously characterize the extent to which they happen. But I think it's pretty well accepted that in at least some kinds of cells, including in some cases cells we care about, like hematopoietic stem cells for potential therapeutic uses, making double-stranded cuts can lead to unwanted consequences. So the combination of, I think, those two simple realizations that, number one, messing up a gene can be useful for fixing some genetic diseases, but not for most genetic diseases where you need correction instead, and number two, Double-stranded breaks are not well tolerated by most living systems and is sort of considered a significant insult to the cell. That's what motivated our lab's development of base editing and prime editing. So base editing and prime editing share in common that they don't make double-stranded DNA cuts. For the aficionados out there, they nick the DNA. A nick is a single-stranded cut, but nicks happen thousands of times a day in every cell it's thought. You can look at the research of Thomas Lindahl and others who have characterized the abundance of NICs in our genomes. Uh, NICs are a natural consequence of many uh, enzymatic processes that work on DNA. And when you NIC 
a DNA double helix. When you nick one DNA strand, the double helix doesn't fall apart. The two pieces of the nicked strand are sort of like uh, lightly frayed edges on the intact strand, but they stay together. There's no loss of the information of which end ends up connected with which other end. So base editing and prime editing either don't cut DNA at all or nick DNA, depending on which base editor you're using. Prime editing makes at least one nick in the DNA, but it's designed to, both technologies are designed to minimize the formation of double-stranded breaks. So how do you end up precisely editing, which is the goal of base editing and prime editing, as opposed to disrupting genes with a base editor or a prime editor? So with a base editor, the base editing agent consists of a programmable DNA binding protein, either a disabled CRISPR-Cas9 that can no longer cut the DNA double helix, or a tail repeat array, which is taken from the talons uh, that I just talked about, linked to an enzyme that rearranges the atoms in one DNA base to instead become a different DNA base. So base editors actually go into a target DNA site and perform chemistry on the base itself, on the DNA letter itself, so that it becomes a different letter. And as a result, base editors can make at least four kinds of changes quite well, and a, and a couple others with a little bit uh, b bigger challenges. But it can do well the conversion of C to T, T to C, A to G, or G to A. And those happen to be the four most common kinds of mutations that are associated with genetic disease. So base editors have the ability to make single-letter swaps of some of the most common kinds of mutations in DNA. And they can do so without ripping double-strand DNA breaks. Prime editors are another kind of engineered molecular machine that work by a, a different mechanism. They also use a programmable DNA binding protein, CRISPR-Cas9, also disabled so that it can no longer cut the DNA double helix. But instead of rearranging the atoms on one DNA base to become a different base, prime editors take a target DNA strand and directly copy a new sequence of DNA onto that target DNA strand in a way that ends up replacing the original DNA sequence. So that's why we think of prime editing as a search and replace uh, gene editing technology. So if you, the analogy that I've used before is if CRISPR-Cas9 is a pair of molecular scissors that cuts DNA, then you can think of base editors as a pencil, rewrites individual letters in DNA, and you prime editors as a kind of molecular word processor that uh, finds a specific DNA sequence and replaces that DNA sequence with a new one by directly writing the new sequence onto the target DNA strand and helping to guide the cell through the DNA repair processes that eventually cause that newly written DNA to replace the original DNA sequence. So that's in a nutshell how a base editor and a, you know, what a base editor and a prime editor do. When you, and I want to get to some more nuances on, on both of those, but mm -hmm. as you were approaching kind of the research, did you recognize or your team recognize originally a, a double-stranded break is actually really a dramatic thing to do and think about going after the NIC process as a first entry? Or like how did, going from the original CRISPR yeah. paper and seeing that, like how did you then approach the problem to develop these new techniques? Yeah, so, you know, it's a complicated story. I think a good one, but it's pretty nerdy. And like a lot of stories in science, it draws on the contributions of many labs over many decades. And, and maybe I'll start with Maria Jason's lab. So Maria Jason made the seminal discovery about 30-ish years ago that if you make a double-stranded cut in DNA, you can stimulate a process called homology-directed repair, or HDR. Homology-directed repair is a process by which a new DNA molecule can replace the DNA sequence around the cut site. And so HDR was originally considered an approach that might allow a precisely 
replace an original DNA sequence in a human patient, prospectively, with a new sequence, which would be, you know, wonderful. And HDR does work in certain kinds of cells, but we now know a few things about it that have really limited its therapeutic relevance. One is that it generally requires cells that are actively dividing, and most of the cells in your body now are not actively dividing. And getting the HDR product to be efficient compared to the normal byproducts of making a double-stranded break, namely these uncontrolled insertions and deletions, uh, these larger deletions, translocations, chromothripsis, other side effects, it's very difficult to get the changed products to be mostly the HDR, the desired HDR product. So I think that was sort of fact set number one, that the simple recognition that double-stranded breaks may not be widely useful for making precise changes in the genome. And just as your intuition might tell you, if you're trying to fix a specific DNA sequence into a specific corrected DNA sequence, simply cutting the initial sequence doesn't actually fix the problem. It leads to further disruption of the gene. Now, disrupting genes can be very useful, as researchers have already demonstrated in some important clinical trials. But you have to get a little bit lucky. So one way you can make great use of disrupting a gene is if your disease is caused by making too much of a gene. And we saw this wonderful clinical result recently with Intellia's ATTR trial, in which they showed that patients who suffer from transthyretin amyloidosis caused by making too much of certain protein can prospectively benefit, can have the amount of that protein lowered dramatically by cutting the gene encoding that protein, because cutting the DNA messes up the gene, which then prevents the protein from being made. The other example that's already shown promising clinical results is the CRISPR therapeutics vertex trial, in which sickle cell disease or beta thalassemia patients have mutated copies of their adult hemoglobin gene. Now, if you cut the adult hemoglobin gene, you don't fix it necessarily. You generally mess it up more. But if you cut a different gene that's involved in silencing a redundant set of hemoglobin genes called fetal hemoglobin that we all have that's turned off around the time we're born, then you can reawaken those redundant fetal hemoglobin genes and have working hemoglobin that compensates for your mutated adult hemoglobin genes. So as you can tell, because it took me a long time to explain that example, you have to get a little lucky in that case because there has to be sort of a perfect storm of disrupting a gene leads to reawakening a redundant gene that can compensate for a defect in the first gene. And that kind of situation is, is really difficult to come by. I'm not aware of many examples, maybe any other examples that are quite set up like that. But that doesn't change the fact that cutting the genes that are involved in silencing fetal hemoglobin to reawaken that fetal hemoglobin gene uh, looks like very promising treatment for certain kinds of blood diseases. But when we think about the vast landscape of genetic diseases, there are more than 75,000 human gene variants that are associated with genetic diseases, if you look at the vast majority of those examples, it's hard to imagine simply disrupting a target gene as, as leading to a benefit to the patient. So that's really what motivated this, this desire to figure out how to directly change the old DNA sequence that we don't want into the new sequence that we do want in order to both study the diseases so that we can install them in cells or in animal models, and potentially to treat the diseases by making the, correct, the corrected change in a human patient. 
So this sort of complicates things, right? Because as you see it, and when we talk about sickle cell and beta thalassemia as a great example, if we're disrupting the gene, then maybe we'd see, you know, even better efficacy if maybe we used a base editor there, or maybe even a prime editor. So can you tell us a little bit about how you see sort of the therapeutic landscape and maybe what different type of, of modalities might be best suited for, for different type of therapeutic interventions? Right. Yeah, that's a great point. I think most people are familiar with the fact that base editors make single letter swaps in DNA, but they maybe aren't as familiar with what are all of the ways you can use those single letter swaps. So, of course, the, the simplest to understand way is you can use a single letter swap to change a mutated gene that causes progeria, for example, back to the normal healthy sequence, as we did in mice, rescuing symptoms of the disease. But you're absolutely right, and it's, it's an, I think, a really important point that you made, that if you have the ability to change one base pair to another base pair, and because base editors operate directly on Cs and on As, and every DNA base pair has either a C or an A in it, Prospectively, a base editor could act on any DNA base pair in the genome. And by making a, a deterministic change, a change that you can predict, unlike the consequences of making a double-stranded cut, which we can't control, you can control, you can know that when you use a base editor, the major product you will get out is the conversion, if you're using an adenine base editor, of an AT base pair to a GC base pair. And if you're using a cytosine base editor, you know that that CG base pair you're targeting will most of the time become a TA base pair. And the simple knowledge that you're deterministically making a base pair change, not relying on rolling the dice to see what happens, what mixture of products you get out that you can't control, means you can use base editors to do things, just as you mentioned, like disrupt a gene. But instead of disrupting the gene by cutting it and getting a mixture of products out that cause frame shifts, et cetera, you can use a base editor without making a double-stranded cut in the DNA to introduce an early stop codon or wipe out a start codon or a splice site or to take out a regulatory sequence or install a mutation that naturally causes a gene silencer to turn off the gene. All of those have been done, have been published, and in some cases have gone quite far. Verve has used, Verve Therapeutics has used base editors to disrupt a splice sequence in a very precise way, making a single AT to GC base pair change that prevents the splicing of PCSK9, thereby lowering PCSK9 levels and serum LDL cholesterol levels in monkeys, as they published in Nature earlier this year. Beam Therapeutics has used this approach in CAR T cells to knock out the genes that are known to enhance certain kinds of T cell therapies. And while you can knock out those genes using CRISPR-Cas9 nuclease, Multiple labs, including several academic groups, as well as, as the scientists at Beam, have published works showing that if you knock them out by introducing early start codon, sorry, early stop codons using a base editor, you can get just as high or even higher efficiencies, but without the stochasticity, without the mixture of Vindels and deletions and translocations and chromothripsis and P53 activation that are associated with making double-stranded cuts in the genome. And researchers have measured and published the rates of these undesired consequences from double-stranded breaks. And so frequently when uh, these papers compare the consequences of using base editors to knock out a gene versus a nuclease, they will measure side by side what is the translocation frequency from treating with a base editor versus a nuclease? What is the amount of P53 activation? What is the amount of large deletion? And in all three of those cases, researchers have measured that uh, the base editors have gotten pretty clean bills of health 
even though, as many other labs have reported, the nucleases will induce these unwanted consequences. So I think your point is valid that even in cases where the goal is to disrupt a gene, there may be advantages to disrupting it cleanly by making a specific single base pair change as opposed to a double-stranded break. Why would somebody, say I'm a, a researcher or have an eye on an application, commercial therapeutic application, starting today, why would I pursue a CRISPR a double-stranded break-based method versus doing base editing or prime editing, which we can Yeah, do? I mean, I think there are a lot of considerations that go into what a researcher uses. If it's an academic researcher and they pretty much have carte blanche to go to adgene and pull any construct they want, we are seeing a shift over where researchers are increasingly knocking out genes using base editors. But I think it's more complicated if you are an existing company or a new company, because the access that you have to a particular technology, what you're willing to, uh, you or your investors are willing to pay for that access, and what partnerships you may already have, what relationships you may already have. And of course, the results that may already exist. I mean, I think Intelia's ATTR results and CRISPR-Cortex's fetal hemoglobin results, all with CRISPR, both with CRISPR-Cas9, are really impressive. And you know, they probably don't feel any need to to try to pursue a different technology to achieve what they already see as promising consequences of editing. But I think it is, you know, maybe a different question for newer efforts, especially for academic efforts, where to simply minimize the perturbation that occurs in a cell or an organism, we are seeing a lot of researchers go to base editing, gives us weekly reports and tells us that there have been more than 13,000 laboratory requests for for base editors from the constructs that we deposited in adgene. And there have been hundreds and hundreds of, of publications that have come out of their use. And the rate appears to be accelerating, not leveling off. So I think it is an option that people should consider and are considering, even if their goal is to simply knock out a gene because the bottom line is that single-stranded NICs and point mutations in general are just uh, tolerated far better by most biological systems than double-stranded breaks. One of the things we've looked at is that if you think about the opportunity for curative technology, particularly in, in kind of some of these indications that you're talking about, it's the latent population is so much larger than the incidence rate, as in, you know, there's a lot of people that have sickle cell disease who are managing it with transfusions and, you know, have chronic pain and everything else, where when, if a cure is approved, like they go get it, right? And so I guess the question is, do you think there's a dynamic where the first effective cure approved then kind of wins a large share of, of the population that would then sign on to it? Or what would prevent that from happening maybe on, on the other yeah. side? I think there's a mathematical answer why I think that's unlikely for a disease like sickle cell. One is that, and the mathematical answer is that 300,000 newborns a year are born with sickle cell disease. That's a lot. That's more than many genetic diseases, entire known human population of, of patients. And so the allele frequency of sickle cell disease is high enough already in the population in the world, including not just sub-Saharan Africa, but in the U.S. and many other countries that there, I think, will be a need for quite some time for sickle cell disease treatments. You know, second, it's tempting to speculate that if sickle cell disease goes from being a sort of, you know, causing premature death in one's 30s or 40s to becoming something that is, God willing, treatable with a one-time administration of a gene-editing drug, that there will just be more sickle cell families that are having sickle cell kids. And you can't change the genetics unless you go to germline editing, which is a whole nother can of worms that I think won't be happening anytime in the near future for all the reasons that is, have already been discussed. 
But I think the allele frequency of sickle cell, the sickle cell mutation is high enough that the sheer number of patients being born every year with the disease, uh, I think will always require the best possible therapy to treat them. So it's possible that the first therapies out of the gate will work well and will be used to treat certain numbers of people, but that better and better therapies will come along that will do a better job either from an efficacy point of view or a safety point of view. And in all cases, I'm a little bit skeptical that it will be anytime soon for the vast majority of those patients even have access, unfortunately, to the treatment, simply because all of the current generation of sickle cell gene editing therapies being trialed now or about to be trialed rely on ex vivo editing, followed by a bone marrow transplant. And, you know, the vast majority of sickle cell disease patients don't really have ready access to a bone marrow transplant. So what's urgently needed in, in that target area is a way to do in vivo gene editing to permanently correct the sickle cell mutation without having to require bone marrow addition that is taking out the bone marrow, editing it outside of the body ex vivo, and then transplanting the edited cells back into the body, often accompanied by a, a chemical treatment that removes some or all of the original bone marrow and allows the new bone marrow to engraft. And as uh, Bluebird and, and others have found, those treatments themselves can cause undesired effects in, in the patients. So there's a question I get very often about you, Dr. Liu, which is that you obviously were a co-founder of Beam Therapeutics, and about three years later, after your lab first reported on base editing, you reported another gene editing technology, which we're talking a lot about here, which is prime editing. And I get the question a lot, is prime editing just going to replace base editing? So I think we've done a good job talking today about how they can kind of work together. But maybe we can just uh, spend a minute or two on that, because that's definitely something that I get asked quite often about how the two companies and the two technologies really can work together. Yeah. And this is all disclosed in Beams S1, among other documents, but I think it is complicated. So it may be worth going over the story a bit. But of course, when by the time we, we develop prime editing, base editing, both on the academic side and in, in beam therapeutics, was going really well. And, and they were doing, making a lot of progress, both on the technology development side and on the drive the applications forward towards human patients side. So I think the priority when thinking about how to bring prime editing to patients was how to do it in a way that didn't detract from the patients that would be wonderfully served by base editing, and that could take advantage of the incredible leadership and expertise and infrastructure that Beam had already developed to sort of jumpstart getting prime editing to patients. And so the way Prime, prime Medicine, the company that has licensed prime editing, was set up was in partnership with Beam. So, you know, John Evans, the CEO of, of Beam Therapeutics, sits on the board of Prime Medicine. And the initial leadership of Prime Medicine was basically Beam Therapeutics leadership. The board of directors of Prime and Beam largely overlap, at least the, the original board of Beam and the original board of Prime. And the rights to Prime editing for the mutation types that can be made with base editing, Beam has the exclusive rights to do that. So the way that the companies set up was to have a relationship in which the interests of both companies and of patients were all aligned. The goal was to for any specific disease indication to be able to quickly and nimbly move between whether base editing or prime editing is the best choice for that particular correction, and to never set up a situation where if it was base editing, then one company would have it. If it was prime editing, then another company would have it. But rather, early on, it would be evident that 
whether it's base editing or prime editing, that beam therapeutics or prime medicine would be uniquely best suited to serve that patient population. So hopefully it's not too long-winded of an answer, but for some applications of prime editing, in other words, beam has the exclusive rights to use prime editing. And for other applications, uh, prime medicine has the rights to use it. But in all cases, the leadership of Beam and of Prime are in close contact and have a good relationship and work together. And the scientists who are using prime editing at Beam Therapeutics interact with the scientists using prime editing at Prime Medicine and vice versa. So that's how the companies were set up to try to uh, best move whichever technology is in the best interests of a particular patient population forward while minimizing you know, wasted effort from having two companies competing to serve the same patient population. And this is where your analogy on the, the boat car truck, I think, is, is really helpful. I don't know if you just want to say it quickly, but... Yeah, I mean, it, you know, like all analogies, especially ones that try to compare gene editing technologies to vehicles, it's admittedly not perfect. But the way that I like to think about it when somebody says, you know, is it true that uh, the nucleases will be replaced by base editors, which will be replaced by prime editors, is I like to say no. It's, you know, much the way that a boat hasn't been replaced by a car, which hasn't been replaced by a truck. You know, even though you could argue the truck has more versatility than the car, many people, most people still drive cars, maybe because it's easier and they cost less or whatever. And likewise, you know, if your goal is to, to cross an ocean, a car is not going to be very helpful to you. And so I think these tools will have their own strengths, their own niches, and, you know, consistent with that idea, I think all of these technology platforms, all three of the major ways that human uh, cells can be edited in a general way, uh, namely uh, nuclease, base editor, or prime editor, uh, all three of them are being uh, developed. And, you know, I think while there is inevitably some sense of competition within the gene editing field, I think one might be surprised at how much all the players in the field cheer for each other and spoke to people even for individual companies or academic labs that are associated with one technology or another, will often celebrate the successes of the other because it really is a case where we're in this very special period of science and of humanity where we want everybody to succeed because something uh, very special is happening. And you know, if we don't mess it up, then we think humanity will be much better off. So far better to everybody's efforts to celebrate the ways in which each of these technologies can be used to benefit people than to try to push other people down. Sure. But I mean, you know, I use a word processor. I don't use a pencil anymore. And I don't edit documents by like, I guess, spilling ink all over the page to cover some stuff up, which I guess is maybe the equivalent of CRISPR-Cas9. So in the future, call it, like in your view, do you think, like, why wouldn't it all be word processing based? Like, what are the advantages of, say, base editing versus prime editing? What context would base editing still be more yeah, efficient? Um, it's changing over time. Even now, I would say the most state-of-the-art base editors are more efficient than the most state-of-the-art prime editors. At the Cold Spring Harbor meeting that just took place last week, we unveiled our new prime editing systems, PE4, PE5, PE Max, and EPEG RNAs. And those systems are quite a bit improved over the original versions we reported at the end of 2019. But they are still not as efficient on average as our state-of-the-art base editors, where we can often get 100% base editing, where literally every sequence read that we pull out uh, has, in some cases, has the desired base edit. And you know, if you had asked me a few years ago whether base editing would be able to get that efficient, I probably would have said I'm not sure or, or maybe no. So you know, I, th I think maybe the lesson here is that betting against the field has never been a, a great bet in this field. 
there will be lots of progress made, but at any one moment in time, you know, many of the technologies that are older are more refined or have other fundamental advantages. For example, base editors are smaller than prime editors by about 1,000 coding nucleotides. And that can be an advantage for certain kinds of delivery modalities. And, you know, prime editors are just newer. There are hundreds of base editor papers published. There are only maybe 50 prime editor papers or preprints published. So we just know less about it, even though it is now, uh, both methods are now pretty widely used. And I think the analogy apply here as well. I actually do use a pencil more often than I use a word processor because I do a lot of sort of quick, easy, simple note-taking. And, you know, base editing is certainly a simpler, more direct process. Prime editing is a more complicated process, but it does do something in the end that's remarkable. It replaces a stretch of dozens of DNA bases with a stretch of dozens of bases of whatever you want. So, you know, I, I think the analogy provides an answer to your question, even though I appreciate your perspective that depending on how you process words, you may find that there's nothing beyond a word processor. And sorry to always take it back to this analogy, but I just love it so much. You know, you can also think <laughs> of that, you know, you wouldn't take a truck, which would be, you know, synonymous with prime editing in this example, to like a very small, you know, winding country road, you'd want maybe a smaller car. So I don't know, when I read that, I think it was in Endpoints that you were quoted saying that, right. I was like, this is genius, because it just so eloquently explains the differences in such a easily digestible way. And this is going to be a really selfish question because this is what I'm thinking about right now. So we can nerd out on this, but I'm thinking about the PAM sequence and we're talking about sort of the differences between, you know, the different technologies and we're trying to look at, you know, creating a histogram with Cas9 and how often, you know, that PAM sequence that Cas9 needs, which is NGG, and how often that is in the genome, first of all, but then also, well, it doesn't have to be directly there. So three to four base pairs away, I think, or close enough. So how often that is found. And as we know, with Cas9, you're not going to directly cure that disease per se, but also you might have trouble getting there because of the PAM sequence needed. But with prime editing, you don't actually need to go to a specific PAM sequence. So maybe we could talk about that for a minute and just kind of why that might be advantaged to yeah. prime editing. Yeah, so these are complicated concepts, important concepts. You know, I think the first clarification is, depends on what you're trying to do with a nuclease, with a CRISPR-Cas9, if you're trying to cut DNA for a therapeutic application. If the mechanism of your therapeutic application is to disrupt a gene, then you have lots of choices, because if your goal is to mess up a gene, there are lots of ways to break something. And whether you cut a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right, because your PAM is not available is not that big of a deal. You can find a way to mess up the gene, uh, almost certainly. However, if your goal is to precisely stimulate homology-directed repair, HDR, with a CRISPR-Cas9 cut, as uh, scientists at, on the West Coast are doing now and, and are about to initiate uh, clinical trials to try to correct the hemoglobin locus by using a nuclease and an HDR with a template provided either exogenously or through an AAV, then the PAM is important because you have to, the location of the cut has to be pretty close to the location of where you want the homology-directed repair to take place. So in other words, the first answer to your question is if you're using a nuclease, if you're just trying to mess up a gene, it's not that PAM dependent, but there aren't as many diseases that you can fix by messing up a gene as there are ones that you can fix by precisely correcting a gene. If you're trying to precisely correct it with a nuclease, then the PAM is quite important and can be limiting. With a base editor, there is a base editing window which occurs roughly 15 plus or minus two nucleotides from the PAM. And so the location of the PAM is important. However, there are now, thanks to the work of many, many laboratories, a real cornucopia of base editor PAM variants 
that can recognize all sorts of PAMs. And an example is the sickle cell work we published in Nature earlier this year, where we directly corrected the sickle cell mutation in the hemoglobin gene to a benign variant found in healthy people called uh, hemoglobin Macassar to position that AT-based pair that is present in the sickle cell patients in the base editing window, we needed to use a PAM that was CACC. And CACC does not look a lot like NGG. In fact, there's virtually no overlap with NGG. So Shannon Miller in our lab led the development of, and Tina Wan led the development of tailor-made Pogeny's SPCAS9 variant. So this is an evolved version of the Cas9 that normally recognizes NGG PAMs, and they actually succeeded in evolving ones that would recognize CACC. And that's how we parked the base editor correctly on the hemoglobin site to allow base editing of the pathogenic AT-based pair to the healthy Macassar GC-based pair at that position. So with base editing, it does matter, but there are, the PAM matter, a lot of options out there that give you collective, collectively quite a bit of flexibility. And I'll say that in the first couple of years of base editing, uh, we would often run into a PAM problem where a target site we wanted to edit didn't have an available PAM at the right positions. We couldn't base edit it well. But over the past several years now, it's been a long time since we were defeated at the PAM because of PAM reasons for a base editing application. I think that's really a reflection of the fact that base editors have been developed now that have, there are literally hundreds of published base editors now that have all sorts of different PAM compatibilities and that have nice domains that move the editing window around as well. And the combination of those two innovations has made it very unlikely that you have a target that's well set up for base editing, except there happens to be no PAM around that you can use. Now, it, with prime editing, the mechanism is, is very different. And the copying mechanism, the copying of the new DNA is done by a reverse transcriptase domain in the prime editor. Reverse transcriptases can copy uh, many bases. In prime editing, they can efficiently copy at least dozens of bases, if not hundreds of bases. So it's not as important that a PAM lie a certain distance from the desired edit, because you can always just go to a PAM that's nearby, even if it's not that, the nearest PAM, even if it's not that close by, there's a good chance that you can still prime edit from it because if it's even 30 or 40 or 50 nucleotides away, there's a chance, a good chance that, that the prime editor will still be able to copy all the way from that PAM sequence through your desired genome change. So prime editing is just less PAM sensitive because the prime edits can occur quite a ways away from the PAM. What about, like, again, casting forward and thinking about how these technologies will extend? Two things. One, okay, so you said we have the boat, the truck, and the car. Is there going to be, like, a motorcycle and a helicopter? And, you know, like, <laughs> it's been since the introduction within the life sciences of, or call it the discovery of, of kind of CRISPR's power, like, using that guide RNA to create a lot of other tools, should we think about there likely to be, you know, 50 tools two decades from now or a yeah. lot yeah. It, I think it depends on whether you're a, a short-term extrapolator or a long-term extrapolator. And I, and I hear that ARC are long-term people. So <laughs> I assume the correct view for you guys is in the 75-year history of molecular biology, there have only been three general human cell gene editing technologies, nucleases, base editors, and prime editors, fundamentally different technologies. There are variations within each of those classes. But I'd say, you know, in terms of what are the bonds that are being changed in DNA, the nucleases are cutting phosphodiester bonds, the backbone of DNA on both strands. The base editors are rearranging the atoms in the individual nucleobases to instead resemble other bases. And the prime editors are taking a freshly nicked target DNA strand and are copying base by base, making the new phosphodiester linkages to put that information directly onto the new target strand. 
That, that's it. So I guess the long view is in 75 years, there have only been those three technologies that have proven to be general and robust in, in mammalian cells. But there will be other ones. I think some of you are, are already familiar with the exciting CRISPR transposases, uh, CRISPR integrases. So these are also RNA programmed molecular machines, of course, found in nature, that labs, including uh, Fanjan's lab and Sam Sternberg's lab, have independently worked on. They're, those two labs have worked on different systems that allow large pieces of DNA to be moved. And that's an exciting and very complementary technology to the ones we've been describing, because with the movement of large pieces of DNA, uh, potentially gene-sized pieces of DNA, like 10,000 base pairs, you could imagine putting entirely new genes into targeted spots in the human genome. And that's important because I think as researchers have seen with lentiviral gene therapies, you can confer a therapeutic benefit to integrating a whole gene cargo into a human cell, but it's safer and possibly more efficacious and possibly more likely to recapitulate the natural regulatory cadence of the gene if you integrate it exactly where you want it to go rather than semi-randomly integrating it into the genome. So I think that's one technology to watch. Uh, thus far, there's been no published work showing that those systems can work in mammalian cells, but I'm sure there's many labs working on, on solving that problem. But, you know, I, I think 50 is probably a stretch. I don't think there's going to be 50 general mammalian cell gene editing technologies. And, you know, my personal view is I think the maybe the long view is more reflective of the pace over the next several decades that it's you know, I would not be surprised if new technologies came out more on the sort of one every 10 year time scale rather than the short view that, you know, well, base editors were published in 2016 and prime editors in 2019. So by 2022, we should have something else. I, I'm very skeptical that, that that's going to be the pace going forward. Got it. But well, I would be delighted if, you know, the field surprised again. <laughs> so you're saying you don't have something in the lab that's going to come out next year that's going to be like prime plus editing or anything like that? I thought in your opening disclaimer, you said that you can only talk about public <laughs> yes, information. Yes, 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 sorry. Yeah, please don't answer. Um, <laughs> a lot of times we are, you know, I think we all focus on kind of like the rare disease or genetic disease context here, but it seems like, you know, every disease, seemingly every disease has some kind of molecular basis, right? And so conceptually, you know, there's a lot of diseases that have much more complex things happening going on. Would you anticipate that one flavor of these technologies is more amenable to kind of addressing polygenic diseases? Or do you think that's so far outside of both our field of understanding? Yeah. And, and no, I, I think that's an insightful question. And there are two ways you could think about addressing polygenic diseases. One is there's maybe two different ways a disease can be polygenic with respect to how it affects therapeutics development, regulatory approval, etc. One is a situation where many different mutations cause the same disease. And so one imagines, wow, it's a real challenge if you imagine a disease where 100, 1,000 different mutations can cause the disease. Who's going to develop a drug to treat, you know, five people in each of, that are each affected by one of 1,000 different mutations? That seems like a, a sort of regulatory challenge and a manufacturing challenge, a, a research investment challenge. And that's one of the aspects of prime editing that we're really excited about because prime editing can pave over a fairly long sequence of DNA. We think and have already demonstrated in the lab, uh, presented in, at conferences, so it's public information, that one prime editor and peg RNA composition of matter can install or correct any of a whole slew of mutations. And so that provides a potential path forward for some, not all, but some uh, situations where lots of different mutations in a gene can each cause the same disease. 
That is, you can have one composition of matter if it's a prime editor that corrects all of those mutations within a, a certain stretch of DNA, say dozens or, or maybe hundreds of base pairs. The other, I think, answer to your question is cases where multiplex editing, that is the simultaneous introduction of multiple edits in the genome, can serve as a therapy. That can be useful both for the first case I described, because for some editing technologies like base editing, for example, if you don't have the mutation and you get a base editor, nothing happens to that target site. You have to have an A or a C at the target position in order to be base edited. So if you're normal in that sequence and you already have a G there, then the base editor has no chemistry that it can do. So in that case, you could imagine treating with a cocktail, with a base editor that has a cocktail of guide RNAs that send the base editor to three or four, five different positions in the genome for those diseases where you believe that multiplex editing is a promising way to, to treat a patient. And whether the patient is one, two, three, or five of those mutations, in principle, the base editor should only act on the mutation that exists. The same is true for a prime editor, that because of the mechanism of prime editing, you will nick the target site, potentially, even if the target site is already corrected. But in, if that occurs and prime editing takes place, it will simply replace the already corrected target sequence with exactly the same copy. So I think those are answers to your question of what types of technologies are well-suited to do more to address some of the challenges associated with polygenic diseases. And in general, I think the, the least perturbative of the, the gene editing technology, the more promising it is for more complicated treatments that may require multiplex editing or uh, may require uh, lots of different editing uh, solutions to all be offered to diverse patient population. So I just also don't want to hold you hostage because I realize we've been on for more than an hour and I uh, I know your time is very valuable. So maybe do you have time for one or two more questions? Yeah, no, sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I thought maybe we could transition into delivery vehicles. So mm-hmm. maybe if we could talk a little bit about what is a delivery vehicle, what is kind of a viral versus non-viral vehicle. I know you mentioned AAVs before, so maybe some people on the line aren't familiar with what that is. Yeah, so viruses by definition are basically naturally evolved entities, some people don't consider them life forms, entities that basically have evolved to inject their DNA or RNA into a host cell so that the host cell makes the virus's proteins encoded by its DNA or RNA and perpetuates the viral life cycle. So a lot of what I just said is the definition of a virus's life cycle sounds a lot like it would be useful for gene editing, and indeed that's the case. So you can remove the parts of a virus that give you a cold and replace it with a gene editing with the instructions to make a base editor or a prime editor or a, or a nuclease. And then if that virus infects a human cell or an animal or a human patient, it will deliver your editor into the cells that would naturally be infected by that virus. So there's a lot of complications to using viral delivery vectors. They are wonderful in many respects, including the fact that for some tissue types, like the heart, they are arguably the most effective way we know to deliver gene editing agents. But, you know, they are also uh, prone to potential downsides. Almost every virus, I think, has been well characterized to be used, uh, well characterized enough to be used in animal studies or in clinical trials, uh, has some kind of toxicity associated with it at, at high doses. Now, to be fair, I think non-viral delivery vehicles also have, at some point, some dose-limiting toxicity. But I think with viruses, there is also the, uh, the potential worry that because uh, most of these viruses introduce DNA into a cell, 
one has to be very careful that the DNA doesn't end up integrating into places in the genome that we don't want. And to be clear, integration of DNA into a genome will almost never cause a problem. The, the issue that we worry about is, is one exception, which is if you initiate cancer that way. If you integrate DNA into the genome, first, you have to be very unlucky for it to even land in an gene. But if it does land in an important gene and just messes up the gene, then that cell will die. And as long as this doesn't happen all the time or most of the time, the patient will probably be fine because the loss of very small numbers of cells from rare events that cause the cell to die does not actually, is not considered to be a serious adverse outcome. What would be a serious adverse outcome is a rare one in a million DNA integration event that happens to disrupt a tumor suppressor, for example, or happens to cause a kind of insertion that puts the promoter used to drive your desired cargo gene, drive the expression of your desired cargo gene uh, right next to or upstream of a gene that can cause uncontrolled cell division. So, so I think that's one of the potential downsides of viral delivery is the, that whenever you're introducing new DNA into a cell, you have to be very careful to minimize the possibility that the DNA gets into DNA that initiates cancer. Now, to put things in perspective, your body is being infected by viruses that introduce new DNA into your cells all the time. And just as your body is, is undergoing random point mutations all the time, and today your trillions of cells will have accumulated hundreds of billions of point mutations just from the day. So, you know, I think it's important to have some basic perspectives about the fact that our genomes are naturally fluid. They're not quite the holy temple that some people think they are. But that said, it is important to minimize unwanted changes in our genomes. And, and one potential source of unwanted change comes from introducing new DNA in the form of these viral vectors. So then there's non-viral delivery, which most famously now that several billion people just used a non-viral delivery vector to get an mRNA vaccine for COVID, is the use of lipids complexed with mRNA, for example, to deliver a, a gene editing agent. That's therapeutic modality used by Verve and Beam to edit PCSK9 in monkeys successfully uh, with a base editor mRNA delivered that way. That's also how ex vivo, a variety of companies are delivering nucleases and base editors to treat sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia. That is non-viral. It's using electroporation of mRNA into hematopoietic stem cells outside of the body. And so non-viral delivery, you know, might seem like a really promising approach because it dispenses with the possibility of DNA integration. The challenge is we don't have lipids that can access every part of the body efficiently. And electroporation is great for bone marrow cells, but the bone marrow is sort of unique as an organ that you can take out of a patient, edit, and then put back in a patient. It's hard to imagine doing that with your heart or your brain, for example. So, so again, there's a matter of circumstance that has provided this sort of perfect storm where ex vivo electroporation of hematopoietic stem cells turns out to be a therapeutically useful and promising delivery approach that is virus-free. I think this is something you said when I was talking to you about AAVs once and I was complaining about them and you said, well, look, it's like saying I don't really want to use an airplane because it takes me from point A to point B, but I want something better. So if we don't have a better option, um, it's hard to be too picky just yet, but probably your lab will come up with something. So that would be great. But the, the whole field is, you know, many, many labs are, I mean, hundreds of labs are working on delivery for a good reason. It's incredibly important. And now, more than ever, we have lots and lots of things we want to deliver, like all these gene editing agents. So, you know, I'm optimistic that delivery will, and I think we're already starting to see this, that delivery will 
not be as frequently a showstopper as it used to be. We're already seeing now that we have ex vivo electroporation, lipid-mediated mRNA delivery in vivo, AAV-mediated delivery in vivo, some really creative, lesser-known viruses that are being used in vivo. We have virus-like particles that replace the guts of a virus with the actual machinery you wish to deliver, either in RNA form or in protein form. Sanjan had a, a paper recently uh, reporting a new kind of VLP that just published, I think, this past week. Yep. So there's lots of progress that's being made in the delivery field, driven, again, by the intense need and by the fact that it's really exciting to imagine being able to deliver these transformative technologies into, you know, ideally any type of cell that we wish. And while I think it'll take us a while to get there, you know, I, I think we will eventually get there, just as if you had asked me, you know, even just five or 10 years ago, how long is it going to be before we can make just about any kind of local change in DNA that we want in a human cell? I probably would have been not as optimistic as the reality, you know, is starting to look. So I want to go back to LMPs for one quick second. So let's say, you know, we're, we're continuing to take the LMP from, you know, vaccine for SARS-CoV-2. Is there any issue with, you know, immunogenicity and immune reaction just happened from the LMP? Yeah. So maybe the first thing I should preface these comments with is I'm, I'm not an LMP expert. I don't consider myself to be one. My understanding is that you can get adverse consequences associated with lipids from immunity. However, the lipid specialists and the, the companies that use lipids for delivery are very aware of this issue, and they screen lipids on this basis. And my understanding is that some of the lipids used for delivery of these mRNA vaccines for COVID were screened in part to avoid lipids that seemed to cause immunogenicity. You know, I think maybe the more relevant kind of uh, COVID vaccine with respect to adverse consequences of immunogenicity would be the adenoviral ones, where I think if you develop, if you get injected with an adenoviral vaccine, there is, you know, you are expected to generate an immune response to the adenovirus that may make it more difficult to get future doses of that adenovirus or other related adenoviral vaccines or adenoviral gene therapies. That makes perfect sense. So, Brett, I don't want to, I feel like we're keeping you hostage a little bit, Dr. Lou. So, I don't know, Brett, do we have any final questions before we, uh, we let Dr. Lou go back to saving the world? No, I think saving the world's important, or at least saving us from <laughs> genetic diseases. So let him get back to that. <laughs> well, I, I was doing something much less glamorous otherwise, but I won't tell you what it is because now I'm embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> now you have to tell us. No, no pressure, no pressure. We just want to thank you so much for joining um, to all the listeners, but especially to you, Dr. Liu. Every time we speak, I, I just learned so much and it's, it's really pretty amazing what you've accomplished so far. And then we'll continue to follow the progress from the papers and, and what your lab is doing. Well, thank, thank you guys for your interest in the field and in this work and uh, for helping to fuel so much of the, directly or indirectly, so much of the research and the progress that's going into the science and into patients eventually. I, you know, I'm very aware that one way or another, much of it comes from investing. So we really appreciate and take seriously the obligation that people putting their faith in these technologies, you know, deserve. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks again to everyone. And thanks yep. for that. Okay. Yep. Take care, everybody. And thanks for listening. Thanks. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results.
Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.